0: Uh, this class will be about Peter the Great and it's a continuation of our history of Russia. Last time we left off with uh, the Old Believer controversy which began under uh Peter's father Alexei Romanov. Yes, actually Peter uh becomes Tsar in 1682 but as a child and uh he doesn't really take over till 1700. And then he lives to 1725. He's a, it's interesting, uh, uh, these um, emperors, Tsars become Tsars' children. The other one that's kind of famous is uh, Ivan the Terrible, who becomes Tsar. And it's actually the trauma of their childhood that makes them such uh, such monsters. <laughs> as ch- and to a certain extent, uh, Peter has the same problem, I guess. He... Becomes whereas uh, Alexei was uh, very respectful of the church and actually uh, for a long time kind of relied on the patriarch as, as a guide, uh, Patriarch Nikon. Um, Peter does not seem to have many uh, feelings of affection for the Orthodox Church or for Russia in general, and he, as a as a young Tsar uh, who is not yet uh, ruling his mother, his, his regent, he goes off to um, Holland and England to the West to learn about the Western world, which is what he's really interested in in the, in the late 16, 1698, 1699. Yes, he studied, studied um, shipbuilding in Holland and uh, went to England and He talked with Isaac Newton there and learned, um, was very interested in in kind of Western technology at that time. And the great, uh, this period was the period when Holland had just become free of the Spanish Empire and was building up a huge uh, kind of mercantile empire, empire, trading empire, uh, as of now a free Protestant country and uh, England also, important, uh, had had kind of taken dominance, sea power away from Spain after the uh, Spanish Armada. So, Peter is kind of going and visiting now these two leading maritime, Protestant maritime powers. And Peter comes to identify with, in some ways, first off, this desire for sea power, kind of uh, interest of his and, and power uh, and he sees the West as kind of offering uh, you know modernity kind of a more greater technology so he sees kind of a great uh, fascination with the West and then also an, an identification with Protestantism and particularly what he likes about the Protestant countries is, 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 is their um, uh, or politics, rather than their politics, rather than their kind of theories of government, rather than their um, theology as such. It's In the Orthodox world, uh, the Church kind of has an independent existence. Um, the state, I mean, the, like we uh, just had this, or last Sunday was the Feast uh, of Justinian, uh, as well as. Uh, but one of the things with him was the symphony of church and state, that the church and state worked together, and they didn't. It wasn't a separation of church and state. The, uh, the emperor was a part of the church, and the law of God kind of was over the law of the of the laws of the laws of of the, of the government. And second, uh, unlike you know, but what we would be maybe comfortable in, in modern times, the, uh, the the emperor felt free to be part of the church, not to as a ruler over the church, but as a participant in theology, and in the, the solutions of trying to solve the problems facing the church as well as the empire. Uh, Ivan the Terrible we saw had all had kind of taken in this Western idea of absolutism, where that the, uh, the that god had sort of only was uh, giving his authority on earth strictly to the king and so ivan saw anyone who didn't obey him or who disagreed with him including the metropolitan you know the patriarchs actually as uh, as heretics because they were because they were you know against his ideology of this this the uh of the divine right of kings we call it in the west but that sort of that, that ideology, which is foreign to the Orthodox world, but was but was very popular in, in this time, uh, and that's what the English Civil War actually just right before this had kind of been about that. Now, in the Protest, uh, when the Protestant Reformation took place, one of the things that they were the Germans uh, were doing was saying, well, we have to get out from under the Pope, and so what what do we do with the church? if we're not going to have the church be under the pope what is it going to be under and the solution of martin luther was that it should be under the princes and also with calvin the godly magistrates should be taking over and reforming the church basically uh kicking out the bishops and you know making the changes that need to be made and this is what uh peter kind of ties into that that in the the church um, we have the church that's kind of ruled by the bishops and the bishops and the church kind of as a separate uh, hierarchy from the from the state even though as I said there's this kind of back and forth with the, um, the I mean the, the, the king like everyone else is part of the church and we don't we're not a clerical church but he he thought that um, partly because he wanted to modernize and westernize he also, um, was not fond of the Orthodox Church in particular, but, but he also, he, he didn't want to have opposition from the Church, so he kind of grabbed onto this Protestant idea of the ruler as being the person who is responsible for ruling the Church. So, remember, King Henry the Eighth made himself the head of the English Church to still, the situation till today, you know, that the monarch is the official head of the Church, um, and the German countries had done this. So Peter comes back and identifying himself as head of church. And this will take, when he gets back, he has several uh, programs that he kind of puts into place. One of the first things will be, you know, will be the uh, getting into a war with Sweden because he wants to get back out to the coastline so he can set up a great uh, naval port so that he can become a major sea power like Holland and England. The other thing is that he wants Russians to, uh, to westernize life, their life. And so one of the things he does is have people cutting off beards, uh, probably heard about that, and or charging people for their beards and then uh, banning Russian clothing and requiring people to wear Western clothing because, because in a way, kind of like you would think of the third world country today, you know, where people want to dress like people in the in the West. So the same way, Peter felt like well, his country was backward and alien to all the things that he wanted. So he wanted to kind of force them to adopt uh, Western ways. The other things that um, that he and this this kind of ideas of the church will we'll see how that kind of evolves through. But um, the other thing that he does is he decides that because he's kind of, in a way, alien to the Russian um, society and and wants to, to westernize it, in a way he's a kind of puts himself, he feels himself in opposition to his own country and wants to radically change that country. So this gives him kind of the approach of a sort of dictatorship, which is kind of Ivan I mean, had also, but Peter was much more of a westernizing agenda. And he instituted uh, several things, a kind of complete militarization of society. This um, partly was introducing um, Western military uh, uh, arrangements into the, into Russia, but but he kind of conceived of Society as as being like the military, so he had all these ranks, and so everyone kind of had a rank, um, and and the the military kind of became the model for society, and then also a um, kind of a state police. So, kind of literally, he created uh, the police state with informers to. uh, make sure that everyone was going to be loyal because he he knew that here he's trying to essentially completely re, remake Russia in what he wants, and obviously he knows that everyone's very unhappy with that. So um, the power of the police state uh, becomes very important part of Peter's approach to government. Is that, is that something new, or has that been done before in Russia? Um, well, Ivan did something very similar with the uh which were in a sense based on a military order probably um it's a kind of combination of the Jesuits and the Teutonic Knights but with the but used specifically for um eliminating not just political enemies but eliminating um rival sources of authority in the Russian state so he he was um, massacring particularly the aristocracy but almost anybody but For the purpose of clearing out uh, potential rivals in society, so that society would uh, would lose, you know, kind of that mid-level management. (laughs) It would just be kind of the czar and everybody else. And that's, uh, in a way, Peter. Peter's more systematic in that he uh, he wants to change society for a particular reason, and he's kind of at war with his own country, and he's. Using, uh, let's say, police state tactics uh, for that purpose. He's often referred to as, as kind of a t- setting up a totalitarian state, although um, some people say, well, that's only appropriate to modern times because of. T-. But, but the theory is essentially the same. Well, friends, you know, the way yes, that's right. It's actually, always. I, mean, it's, you know, I was wondering yeah. where it really started. That yeah. So he did lay the foundation kind for. Of yes well in a way of course each each ivan peter and um you know lenin and stalin i mean each created a totalitarian state for their own reason to an, to a certain extent though um peter's system never really went away and we'll we'll see that you know that so russia to a certain extent always was a police state and never was free of that although most of the czars of the 19th century were nicer guys than peter uh but the uh, the communists, in a certain sense, were a, just kind of because they had a sort of again an ideological purpose. They were um, you know more just more fanatical in making use of this type of approach to society. They had the perfect setup, didn't they? Yes. <laughs> well, they yes. Well, that's a society that already was used to having a secret police and things. Uh, I just mentioned the, one of the kind of from a secular point of view, the main aspect of, of one of the main aspects of Peter's reign is his war with Sweden. He kind of at 1700 goes to war with Sweden and is involved in this huge war because the king of Sweden is very uh, military-minded and campaigns all over the Russian countryside for years. And, and then there's uh, Turkey gets involved, and it's not until um, 1721 that they finally make peace. And he gets his little slip strip of land on the coast and where he can build uh, St. Petersburg, which now becomes the capital and will be the ca- – you know, it remains the capital, actually, to the Russian Revolution. It's uh, partly so that he would have – because he wanted to have this, you know, Western connection. He wants to be part of the kind of this maritime uh, civilization of Holland, England, and now himself. A day, um, and a naval fort was always one of the biggest things, wasn't it? For him, so, um, yeah. Um, I mean, because Novgorod was always there, it's just that shortly before him, the uh, the Swedes, they, Russia was never a big naval power, and the Swedes had taken over the coast. So, but because of his fascination with uh, with the England and Holland now, you know, that became a major priority. Yes? Because father took over it. Oh, okay. Yeah. So this is a, uh, yeah. This Gustavus Adolphus is before so the first this. King of Sweden. Yeah, he's before yeah, exactly. before this period, right? Yeah. Well, just before. Right. 1620. Okay. So this is a, is this the same as the Thirty Years' War or was that before? Well, that's right before years this. Okay. Where yeah. Is yeah. 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 I know I came in late. You may have addressed it, but what is uh, his relationship during this period with the church? I haven't yet. I just mentioned that when we went to the there, he didn't. Okay, as far as um, the church, several things. Uh, One is that when the patriarch dies, he does not appoint a new patriarch, and he begins uh, several processes that will affect the church for a long time to come. Well, he ends up promoting a person called um, Feofan Prokopovich. Uh because the patriarch, he sees the patriarch as a rival. And Feophan was a um basically kind of Lutheran <laughs> a Lutheran uh, Ukrainian, I think, uh, who was educated in uh in Ukrainian Polish uh school who um Agreed very much with Peter's idea that you know God's appointed person on on earth, you know, for ruling the church is really the King. And uh, Pheophon, uh had a very large library. Uh, ultimately, uh, 3,000 books. And out of out of these 3,000 books, uh, 75% of these books were written by Lutherans. All of his own books, of which he wrote. Well, books or, or tracts, he wrote many, um, almost all of them, All, in fact, all of them are essentially talking about sort of the mystical role of the king as the head of the church. And when they talk about bishops at all, it is to sort of say that, well, bishops are overrated, they don't, you know, they're not really as important as people think they are, and trying to, you know, reduce the role of, of a bishop in the church. So, Phaophon becomes, uh, his his, his, his uh, elevations are protested by the other bishops that he's a Lutheran, he's a heretic, but uh, Peter makes him the Bishop of um, um, Peskov, Pus- which it becomes the, because at that time there was no, St. Petersburg is a new place, it's essentially he becomes the Bishop of St. Petersburg. Was or was a well, he was a—I th- mean, technically, he was a baptized member of the Orthodox Church, okay. but in his theology, he was Lutheran, and so everybody knew that and was saying, "Well, how can you promote this guy to be a bishop? He doesn't believe the Orthodox faith." But he believed what Peter believed, so he becomes the head of. Uh, let's see, I think his yeah, seventeen, eighteen, until. His death in um, 1730, 1736. Right, he he becomes the head of uh, well, he becomes important bishop. But then Peter, they they together make something called the Holy Synod, and the Holy Synod is, is replaces the patriarch. It's a board of directors for the church. And this board is led not by a bishop, or, um, but by somebody called the Ober- Oberprokurator, uh, which is a German, Oberprokurator, or procurator who is a government official, essentially like a cabinet member, who takes the place of, uh, in a way takes the place of the patriarch, the the uh, whole thinking of, of Phaethon is that the church should not be an independent, and, and Peter, so the church should not be an independent entity of its own uh, administration, but rather that the church is a, is a portion of of the government's responsibilities and that it's run by the king, who runs many different things, and he has, so the king has various ministers and departments in of his government and the church is one of those departments and the minister for the minister for church affairs essentially and, is the uh, is the over procurator now um, this um Féphan as the actually he's not initially the over procurator but he kind of uh Ultimately, I think he becomes that he he kind of runs he runs things for Peter and the and actually for when Peter dies, his niece takes over, and so under her also, the um, they begin a, a policy of trying to bring pretty much radical change um, to 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 make the Orthodox Church more like the Lutheran Church, and this is sort of a, you know, re-education of, uh, regarding many things and including uh, kind of a, a low view of monasticism. So there's an attempt to uh, not, uh, kind of get rid of monasticism. This um, initially, uh, basically, you know, done through regulation partly. At certain times, Peters never wasn't consistent, but he organized all monastic uh, Church properties into a Department of State, um, which then he occasionally, uh, first off, he would, you know, say, well, that all these lands now belong to the state, and you know, whatever kind of stipend we think is reasonable, we'll give you some money from that. But uh, that kind of goes back and forth. The other thing is that he then, you know, wants to regulate them mon- have the government control the monasteries to have them do useful tasks. Like taking care of um, paying paying the pensions of of war veterans, and army veterans, and things like that, rather than, um, you know, kind of wasting their time uh, praying or being monastics. So it kind of goes back and forth. He he tries some some very harsh things and pulls back a bit, but it and continues um, this continues really through his reign, his niece's reign, and then later through Catherine the Great's reign. They're they're all um, you know actually Catherine the Great ultimately just totally national, nationalizes all the property and keeps it and they get a little a little percentage of the revenues for the church but this um, so the not only the kind of uh, the leadership of the church is you know that so as you know in the canons we have you know the bishops and the patriarchs and then we have councils of bishops well these these councils of bishops because the term the holy synod you know sounds kind of like it might be very orthodox but but this is not the meeting of all the bishops in the province under the metropolitan or the or the patriarch this is a uh, essentially a, a government organization made up of certain designated uh clerics and laymen meeting under the over procurator and actually the participation of, of uh, clergy almost under anna um, uh, almost drops down to I'm sorry Sophia I think um almost drops down to to uh, to none <laughs> or maybe th- I think there's one bishop and two priests left on the holy synod during her reign um so that and it's not so the church as itself wasn't allowed to call church councils that's why in 19 18 you know the great all russian council with such um uh, you know the idea of having that was such a great because they it wasn't the first time they were allowed to do it because unfortunately you know these very host, Peters very hostile approach to the church, which you know it has to be said that most you know the Czars right after are extremely hostile, mostly. Um, in the 19th century you see kind of more Czars who are more sympathetic with the church, but the basic system doesn't change. Oh, the other thing is that all bishops were required to swear an oath of allegiance to the to the Tsar, and um, in this oath they, they pled their allegiance to, to, and they acknowledged that the Tsar is their ultimate judge. And one uh, metropolitan kind of complained about that later to, um, and then was to Catherine the Great, you know, how can you say that the Tsar is the ultimate judge, you know, and but he ended up getting stuck in a prison for the rest of his life where uh, no one knew his name and he was you know, only fed through a hole, so no one would know who he was. He was the Metropolitan of Rostov and died there. But uh, but that pra- that oath remained, uh, in fact, so what's strange is that, oh no, when Catherine did that, she said, well, okay, the Holy Synod has to now depose this bishop because he was criticizing, so they did. And he's, you know, he's sent away to prison, and uh, and then, you know, from the time of Peter up until 1901, all Russian Orthodox bishops had to swear to that oath upon becoming bishops. So, in 1901, Nicholas II, to his great credit, uh, agreed that this was an impious <laughs> uh, oath, and he changed it to take that out. But but all the others. For whatever sympathy or not they had to the church, uh, still required that. In fact, basically left Peter's system almost totally intact. Um, okay. One of the things that um, Feofan Prokopovich was a which um, was a uh, Ukrainian. Peter liked Ukrainians because two things. One is that they were remember under the Polish. Uh, government, the Ukrainian church had become extremely westernized, and they, all their education was in Latin. So Peter liked that because it showed a kind of western, a western, to what to him, more modern looking uh, view. Second, um, the, he knew that the church was opposed to what he was doing. And, but he realized that if he put Ukrainians in as all the high officials in the Russian church, that they would have, you know, that the Russians would resent them, and so they would have no kind of following among their their own diocese, so their authority would be dependent upon himself. So that was a way of also kind of maintaining their loyalty was by only only putting in Ukrainians in, in Russian church positions. Um The other thing Peter did as part of this was to institute a a, um, change of the educational system. There were some schools that were teaching uh, Greek and teaching patristic theology. Those were closed. A number of, in fact, the the, um, greatest educators in in, uh, Russia were, he had them executed. And then... Uh, he founded a, a whole group of, of seminaries, which where the education would be in Latin, and which became actually the seminary. Russian seminary system up to the 19th century was the Latin, the Latin schools, <coughs> and the teachers again all taken from uh, from the Ukraine. And they quit reading patristics. Yes, actually, they basically quit reading patristics. Uh, theology was taught from Latin textbooks. Remember, and this was um, the the Westernization of the uh, sacramental theology and the services had taken place in Kiev with Peter Mogila. This was all imported, and this is why you know the Roman, uh, the excuse me, the Russian Orthodox Church uh, has so much Latin influence in in a lot of its approach to things because the entire educational system came right out of Poland and the Ukraine, and that's. Uh, so yeah. you read from, oh, Yeah, go ahead. But well, when we read things like some of the rest of the like Florovsky or something like that. Well you how you're, do we know? How do we I mean is there an easy way to know what Yes well Florovsky of course good. that's he's um part of what happened in the nineteenth century was a re the, what's called a patristic, you know, reaction to this whole system. And so uh, I mean Florovsky, uh, you know, is one of the best sources actually on this, so his ways of Russian theology is Excellent. So that's a good, a good source for yes. Real Russian well, and the kind Orthodox of the whole—he's covering the whole history of it. Yes. Oh, okay. I mean, the, you're fortunately in the 19th century. You start to have, um, I mean, in the 18th century it begins, but in, in the 19th century there's a movement in church theology back to patristic roots. Right. And um, church theology overall. You're not just yeah, kind of Orthodox, Well, I mean, in, no, I meant in, particularly in Russian church okay. theology. Um, so that you know, that's why we'll see, you know, that by the end of the time of the Communist uh, Revolution, um, the Russian diaspora in many ways was, a, you know, uh, benefited, I don't say just, you know, the, but it benefited the, the world of orthodox theology and, and part of this, uh, you know, the, the developments that were taking place in Russia were, were leaning to a revival. But you have this this sort of dark period beginning uh, at 1700 where the and if you read some of the older literature, you know, the um uh, Gogol and uh Chekhov I think, you know, they so check out some of the older literature, you know, the the picture of uh the life of seminarians, you know, where they're just learning Latin, they things, you know, that they basically don't understand very much and they're um and the you know, the uh um, they had lost a lot of contact with their own theology, partly because you know the uh, sources are in Slavonic. I mean, and there was uh, resistance to translating that, but also they just just had you know almost no contact with their own patristic tradition. <clears throat> so the uh, by being forced into kind of a Latin culture, uh, you know, it it isolated from the clergy from their own. Past, their past, their own orthodox past, and from their society that they were part, a part of. And, oh, that's the other thing he did, was he created a, a caste. In society in general, he created a caste system because he was kind of this authoritarian, totalitarian kind of guy. But But for the clergy, that meant that you could only be a clergyman if your father was a clergyman. And the, since he didn't particularly want to have too many clergymen, uh, you know, even if you were, your father was a clergyman, if you didn't learn to read, you couldn't be. You would be drafted into the army. And occasionally they would just draft a certain number of young, if they needed recruits, they would just pull them out of the clergy caste and put them into the military class. Uh, so by making it a hereditary caste, this also had a very... Um, unfortunate effect on on the church because the clergy uh well the other thing was that their pay was that essentially you you got to far, you got the parish farm now if you wanted you know the only way your son could inherit the farm is if he became clergy after you so they're this by having a, a hereditary priesthood essentially that that meant that the priests were not being picked as to who were the most spiritual people but Rather, you know, who was part of these priestly families, and that, uh, you know, had a, a bad effect on on the clergy. Uh. Oh, the other thing. In order to accomplish all this, naturally, there were some, um, you know, bishops and priests who protested. Yeah. But he began uh, as as he began the uh, and Phaethon kind of helped orchestrate essentially what what is called to a a reign of terror by uh, executing large numbers of protesting clergy uh torch, widespread uh use of torture and then um uh, imprisonment this um one case this was his uh his son was terrified of him peter's son and fled and the country and then he was finally uh, kind of you know lulled to come back with promises that everything would be forgiven but when he got back his peter tortured him and tried to find out who all his friends were and eventually killed him. And then, so at that point, a whole bunch of uh, bishops were rounded up and uh, tortured to death as well. But that was um, part of a whole system of bringing the church and and society, but the church particularly into subjection to the monarch, was to uh, get rid of anyone in the church who was seen as potentially able to uh, protest and so this kind of reign of terror, which is same I mean that's exactly what uh Lenin and Stalin used terror for was to by you if you terrify a society, then you can kind of do what you want, and they don't object uh so perhaps Ivan too maybe but you know he was he killed lots of people, and so Peter kind of resorts to the tactics of of Ivan the terrible, but he's particularly gearing them against the church because he sees the church as the the one thing in russian society that could stand against him so in he wants to to put so this this is not just a kind of uh you know misinterpretation of church tradition this is that he he specifically wants to crush the church and put it into subjection so that it's like in a protestant country as just under his control the um the thing with the monasteries um, oh I'll just tell you with the education in in the seminaries besides being uh, classic you know I mean Latin textbooks of of Latin theology you also had um, you learned the Latin classics and Thomism but in particular even though it was essentially a scholastic Latin theology Peter's um, preference really was for Lutheranism so it was a kind of um, Latin Latin scholasticism but with a with a Lutheran theology. And it's interesting that uh Catherine the Great, when she was later asked for for the uh, in her correspondence with the French encyclopedias, uh what is what are what is orthodoxy? She said it's the same as Lutheranism in doctrines, in all doctrines. It's Lutheranism but with different rites. Mm-hmm. So this um of course, was the goal that Peter wanted to get to. And um, this, of course, took some time, <laughs> you know, but in her own mind, of course, that's, uh, I mean, she, she also was uh, not particularly orthodox in her. <laughs> I mean, none of, the thing is, I guess, with the only rare exceptions, these people, the czars, were not especially, uh, were in fact, weren't orthodox at all, but in Peter's case and his uh, his niece's case were, um Well, his niece was just simply Lutheran, and you know, used her position over the church to try to, uh, again, crush it into line. Yeah. Um, I've read in uh, some Protestant church history books, you know, when they're trying to show that their doctrines are similar to the other parts of the Christian church. Yeah. They will cite. Certain, you know, doctrinal statements and all that sound, you know, from the Orthodox. That sound pretty Protestant. Yeah. And and you know, they're not really that interested in digging in and finding out why all this was or, or whether this is really representative. Yeah. But they just cite some things probably from sources like this, and then it looks yeah. like the Orthodox are just like us. So. You know. Yeah. Well, of course, something for these people, I mean, they, 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 the rulers. I mean, they were. Um, one of the things that was happening was that the Tsar's family was intermarrying yeah, with so German. Yes, yeah, so the mothers were German. Um, yes, so, so that's... With and yeah, um, we have a string of German uh, families that actually, I mean, Nicholas II, of course, married from uh, people from Darmstadt, but this right. actually was um, early even the Darmstadt is the source of... Source of yeah. brides, but okay. German, Germany as a whole. Mm-hmm. Um, so that probably had a lot to do with it, then. You think, mm-hmm. on you know, a personal level, mm-hmm. because of the, uh... well, the Germans. More... Well, mainly Germans. So the uh, so the, the Luth, let's say Lutheran orientation of the of the czars is not surprising because, to a certain extent, they they were Lutherans, who, you know, were their family you know, they were who were also ruling over Russia, so they were members of the Orthodox Church but not uh, uh, in perhaps in outlook so much. They I, I uh, got the name wrong but it they when I was right the first time that Peter's uh, uh niece was Anna and she just simply uh, she had been living in Germany when she took over. She um you know, they—they they, there was a—they were trying to kind of get her to agree to a sort of constitutional monarchy. She essentially, just took over with a coup, and um, with a brought in her um, German advisors. They and they just ruled the whole country with a. She had a German regiment to guard her, and she continued Peter's uh, police state tactics. She executed thousands of people and sent twenty thousand people to. Uh, into exile in Siberia, and essentially, uh, you know, had her German official, you know, Lutheran officials of state kind of running the the church for her because, and they they didn't like you know I thought the Orthodox Church was backwards and kind of uh, very bad, but they were trying to modernize it to to meet kind of meet up with Lutheran standards. One things with the that's why with the monastics they. Well, they didn't like monasticism. I think she may have tried to abolish it altogether. Uh, there was some attempts at that, but it didn't succeed. But the um, they weren't allowed. Monks weren't allowed to have pa- writing imp- paper or pens, because they were, you know, to prevent them from influencing other people. Um, mon- monks could be drafted into the army when the army needed. It. Of course, novices. Uh, certain a whole, the whole groups of people were not allowed to become monks. So if somebody showed up at a monastery and said, well, I'd like to be a monk, you had to go through a whole pro- administrative process and, you know, they had to meet all these qualifications to sort of be allowed to do that. Otherwise, they would be dragged away. So this, uh, you know, definitely one of the things, there's a interesting statistic uh with the number of monks from, uh, it's from, it's kind of, it's unfortunately the numbers we have are from just before Peter's death and um, during the time of his niece. So, with the, the 1724, he's already, you know, his policies have already been in operation now for quite some time, so it would be great to have a number from before he started. But at that time, there were 25,000 monks. Okay, by 1738, just 14 years later the number had almost dropped in half to 14,000 monks in Russia. So even sort of at the end of Peter's reign and his and his nieces the the amount of monasticism in the country was uh, dropping you know sort of catastrophically um, you know, almost cut in half in such a short time and it probably had you know more than dropped in half during the first part of Peter's reign. Um, this uh reign of let's say reign of terror uh, against the church had a break in uh after Anna Peter's youngest daughter became uh the uh empress uh and her name was Elizabeth 1741 to 1762 and she was kind of easygoing uh re- religious person and so uh, she sort of saved a lot of things from, from extinction though uh, when she took over, you know, there were all these thousands of people who, had, uh, guess, well, put into prison from the church, and she released a lot of them. A lot of the bishops, uh, they were they were let out of prison, but their uh, bodies were so mangled that they couldn't serve anymore because of the tortures. But, but she um, allowed bishops to go back onto the Holy Synod, so that the, under her, the Holy Synod operated somewhat as a church organization, more than a government one, but but as I said, she uh, felt loyal to her father's memory and wouldn't didn't think that she had the authority to change any laws or anything that he had put into place, but she implemented those laws in a way that was sympathetic to the church. So there was a sort of uh, prosperity for the church under her. Um, but the uh, yeah. yeah actually with under uh, Anna you know a number of the monastery major uh, monasteries in the country had were just simply closed down and and all the properties just taken over by the government um and that remained and and the monks and stuff just and just taken into the army that was um part of uh so this period of the persecution ran from about 1700 to Anna's uh, death in 1740. So, in some ways, you know, when you look at the Orthodox Church, although we have, we're um, there's a historical continuity of the church that we are the, you know, we're the Church of the Apostles. But when you look at the modern church, and in, in many ways it looks different. You know, our, there's a lot of things about, you know, the way things are done that are somehow different from they were in the uh, Middle Ages and times of the Byzantine Empire and such. It's uh, one of the real kind of uh, turning points is is Peter. I mean, there's a, from the fall of Constantinople, of course, you already, you know, you start having a lot of Western influence, you know, Peter Mogila in the 1600s, but um, Peter, you know, really Makes this change and creates in in Russia, a uh, a secular society that's kind of oriented towards the West. The um, and this is where you know the the people the the aristocrats living in uh, in uh, Saint Petersburg, their first language is is French. You know they're all speaking French. Don't want to speak Russian because they that society kind of accepted implicitly that that uh, Peter's judgment that the Russia was barbaric and so things that were Russian were not good and so you had your high society had to be imitating Western society so you either spoke German or French. The church had to be educated in Latin uh, because, because you were basically copying the West because the West was what was acceptable. And that society, if you, you know, really coming down to the revolution, if you look at that Kind of the way, uh, you know, Russian society was. I mean, it, it's really, uh, in a way, an imitate. A lot of it was an imitation of of Western society. A lot of the uh, the emphasis, great emphasis on bureaucracy and and kind of this, uh, you know this absolute type government. Um, so, you know, what we inherited, you know, what kind of died out in the Russian Revolution. Although there was the revival of church life. It's it's um, this is what we call sometimes the Holy Russia was not, you know, people think that we well that everything about that society was somehow representative of the Orthodox Church and that we in the Orthodox Church have to, you know, keep, you know, that somehow the the uh, ceremonial of the court and all the, all these things that some of it are very uh, decadent and and uh, and and Western uh, that that's all somehow part of the church, but it's really it's part of you know, it's the inheritance of Peter. It's not, it's inheritance of a, a deliberate attempt to destroy the church's influence in Russian society. So Russia, uh, from this time on, is, you know, kind of a battleground between, and because the, because the high society was part of the czar's westernization and the church was, you know, so much trampled upon, uh, it really made, that's why when, Uh, The intellectuals, you know, and it happens in in a way, perhaps in in Greek society as well, that the intellectuals really identify themselves with the West, not, there's a very, it's the turn back to orthodoxy, you know, that occurs in in the 19th and early 20th century, it's a kind of radical shift for Russia, because for uh, an educated person to be interested in orthodoxy, um, you know, it's it's kind of... sort of nativism or you know kind of going back to the primitive because you know if you're if you're an educated person of course you you know that all that you know you've left all that behind and you're looking towards the philosophy of of the west uh the, to the enlightenment ultimately but the, but the uh, but that's so that's split in russian society that you know only kind of starts to uh change in modern times is kind of originating with him with the kind of dividing society, you know, essentially taking the position of the court and therefore the aristocracy should be against the church. All right. um, On the other hand, I'll just say that, you know, kind of out of the depths, sometimes that's when things, God starts doing things. And um, just like in in the West, actually in the Western world at this time also, the, you know, this is the time of the Enlightenment and rationalism, and and even though the the govern you know the Protestant Church and you know the churches are all sort of official churches in the West, but they uh, theology had kind of been reduced to scholasticism, and the churches were you know becoming kind of very worldly in the 1700s, 16 1700s. Well, mainly in the 1700s, late 16 17, with this emphasis on the Enlightenment. But what happens in the West in the early 1700s is when you have the Great Awakening uh, kind of in reaction to this worldliness. And in Russia, too, this is where the revival of hesychasm takes place, is in the kind of depths of this uh, awful time. Uh, so Paisy Velichkovsky, uh, his young life is under Anna, so, you know, sort of some of the worst uh and then he, he goes to Mount Athos during the time of Elizabeth and comes, comes out, out uh, and establishes his monasteries and kind of re-ignites um, the Hesychast movement in Russia during the time of Catherine the Great. And that's what I'll talk about next time is, is kind of the Catherine's sort of continuation of Peter's policies and then yet at the same time the emergence of the Hesychast movement. There's a um well, I'll talk about uh, Saint Tikhon and uh got Daniel then. Pardon? Got a yes, actually his monastery in Moldavia is, is um, part of the Romanian area. But he but he uh, Paisy Velichkovsky. I just wanted to briefly um point you to the some of the books. The this is what I've mentioned before, Ways of Russian Theology. The um the Orthodox Church and the History of Russia by Dmitry Pospilovsky is a new book, and it's a really good one on the history of the uh, Russian church and kind of uh, is that part covers. Of that same series or is that a one? This is, um, no, I don't know that it's part of the series, but it's, uh, he had written earlier this book on the uh, church in the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. So this does take you up to uh, just a few years ago in the post Soviet uh, church, but but it also goes back to the very beginnings of the Russian Church, so it's a covers its history the whole time. A mm-hmm. Yes, it's St Vladimir's Press, and uh, the Christ, the Life Giver price here is uh, 1995. So you can actually, this one's actually available. I don't know that uh, Florovsky's is usually. I think that is available online. I believe I found it online. Well, that's good. That's uh 'cause because that's a mm-hmm. classic. Mm-hmm. This other one. Um, there's a number of books on paisy Velichkovsky, but this one uh, is, uh, starts "Stars Velichkovsky" by Sergei Chetverkov, uh, But th- uh, that may be a hard one to find. But there's some other things about by him. I mean, about him. All right. Any questions before we go to the service? Yeah, um, just, just to try to bracket this, you're kind of saying that this this dark period started with Peter yeah. the Great and ended approximately when with whom? Well, the worst of it uh, ends with Catherine, I think. But um, but the you know the 19th century the 19th century czars are more favorable to religion, and the the turning point is really the uh, just as in, in England uh, in the west the turning point is the French Revolution, because the you know there's actually in the 18th century everybody's really gun ho about uh, kind of the Value of science and rationalism, and there's a move away from religion in general towards science. With the French Revolution um, in 1789, you uh, there's a you know a, a sort of shock at where all this is going, and I think that's why you know the uh, when you go back into in the Victorian period in England, you know. Somewhat of a of a of a Christian revival, the 19th century, and and uh, in Russia as well, you know, there's the of course the revival of hesychasm, but also that which permeates Russian society, and just in the part of the Czars who are not particularly Orthodox, um, you know, they still are somewhat Lutheran in their outlooks, but they're at least um, they're at least mostly kind of favorable to religion, you know. <laughs> and that's that's the difference whereas in the 18th century you know the uh, Catherine appointed an over procurator who was an atheist i mean she did this as an enlightened ruler that of course you would put put an atheist in as person in charge of the church and he would just you know curse all the bishops <laughs> so it's kind of and that was the enlightened thing to do because religion was superstition and an enlightened ruler you know should do things to help stamp it out but but in the 19th century they didn't have that view they saw it that, ah, there's something positive about religion. So we should be respectful to religion even if we don't take it too seriously ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when you say that uh, those Luther, were Lutherans, are you saying that they believed in the you know, Bible? No, or? I mean that they, that I don't mean that they the were kind world? of pious Lutherans. I just yeah. <laughs> mean that they had a kind of Lutheran oh, wow. vision of the church as being um, kind of a an, an, uh-huh. uh, state religion. That they didn't, you know, technically they were all members of the Orthodox Church, I'm sure, but they, uh, but their outlook was not particularly Orthodox in most cases. In some ways, uh, some are more religious than others. Uh, Tsar Nicholas II, in many ways, is one of the more, but uh, you know, they're they're all coming out of, you know, the the idea of the, you know, the Orthodox ruler, sort of in the sense of Byzantium or something. You didn't have that, uh, you know. Really, from the t- Peter's father is probably the last person in that line of of kind of being really a devout, a devout Orthodox person. Although, well, you could perhaps argue that maybe some people would say that Nicholas Nicholas II was, or some of the others perhaps too. But but it's but at least they're coming in a tradition that's of that's not that's a tradition of rulers that are not particularly uh, loyal to the Orthodox faith. All right. Well, anything else? Or, or, but okay. Thank you. Okay. Thanks for coming.